Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. This is Stephen Moe speaking, and I'm really glad you could join me as I got the chance to speak with Brianne West, who's the founder of Etique. Now, they're an amazing company where mission and purpose are really at the core of what they do, but they're profitable, so they're sustainable as well. So we had a great discussion about that, but also I've seen lots of interviews with Brianne, and not many of them have really asked questions about her early childhood, her origins, the influence of her parents, and how that's shaped what she does today. So I really hope that this interview will offer something new, some different insights about her journey. If you enjoy this, then why not check out some of the other interviews in the back catalog, because there's more than 320 of those now. Seeds is a project building up a collection of stories of inspiring people doing amazing things in the world. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Now let's get straight into this conversation with Brianne. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Brianne West, who's the founder of Etik. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here because um, there's, well, you've been on my list for a long time as somebody that I'd like to understand your journey. So what we're going to do is find out about what Etik is doing today. But before we do that, I'd love to get in a time machine, go right back in time and hear a bit of your history. And, you know, you've done quite a few podcasts, so I've listened to some of those, but I haven't heard as much about some of your early days. So can we go way back to the beginning? Like when you were five years old, where were you living and what was life like for you? I'm very forgetful, so I will piece it together. Uh, When I was five years old, I lived in a country called the Isle of Man, which very few people have probably heard of. It's a country between, I guess, Wales and Ireland, or maybe a little bit higher. Um, And it's a country of about I think 100,000 people, probably 40,000 back then, and it's known for motorbike racing. Um, but it's also got a big marine biology focus. It's a little, you know, a rock in the middle of the Atlantic. Mm. Um, and it's wild, and it's windy, and it's all ocean, and it's it's beautiful. I love it. I went back for the first time ever a couple of years ago prior to the pandemic, and um, it was amazing. Mm. Um, so I guess I was at school. And so, because it is very small, does mm. that mean were your parents from there? Like, is it a place that people are from or did they had they moved there to do a job they or both moved there um a couple of years prior to me coming along uh, they were both from england they grew up in a similar area i should probably know more about this <laughs> <laughs> actually going to go back to see our families in a couple of days over in the uk but um yeah they're both in the same area they moved to the isle of man um look i gotta be honest i think my dad's absolute obsession with motorcycles probably was a right, big call it tipped it over. <laughs> but i think they really liked um a bit of the quieter life for the early years of, of having a child um close to family but not too close you know mm-hmm. um yeah i've never actually asked them why they moved mm-hmm. Oversight. Well, there's some there's some material for you. you there next, is next family dinner on, on, the, <laughs> on the really long twenty four hour flight. <laughs> Why did you move? Okay. Yeah. Mm. There you go. So uh, describe it then, because my memory is it's quite you know there's lots of green grass and it's kind of a beautiful place. Is that an accurate description? Yeah. Or? Yeah, and it's got really rocky, wild coastlines, mm. which I don't know. There's just something about that that's just really. I don't know, calming and freeing and inspiring all at once. Um, sort of my favourite, I guess, view, if you like. Um, but yeah, it's very rural. It's very, there's got some towns, but, you know, they're old, old towns, mm. uh, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And um, it's just a really cool place to go and see a lot of history. So obviously got a bit of Viking background. Um, 
I don't know a great deal about it. Again, I should do, but uh, it's just interesting. But it is a really nice, naturey environment, if you mm. like. Yeah, that's great. And how long were you there then? I moved when I was seven to okay. New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. right. Oh. So your memories uh, as a young child then, that, that's kind of the first place that you remember. Yeah, I remember falling down the stairs. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that's my first memory is, is cartwheeling down the stairs, not on purpose. Mm. Um, and I do remember walking to and from school. Um, I, I don't think it was very far. Oh, and I remember a train used to run down the back of our house and I used to sit on top of this and they were painted like Thomas the Tank Engine characters. Oh, okay. And I used to wave at the... Um, at the train every every day when I got home from school. I don't know why you remember these weird things, but I have a thing for trains now, so that's probably yeah. why. And do you remember, because we share something, which is I came to New Zealand, I have an accent, I came to New Zealand when I was seven years old. Oh, yes, I know, So cool. um, I'm just thinking through, you know, my memories are hazy of that time. Like, I don't remember my parents sitting me down one day and saying, Stephen, we're moving to New Zealand. Do you have any memory of that? Or I was do. It? Oh, okay. Yes, Tell and us. I only really remember when, yeah, I remember they sat me on the kitchen counter. I remember sitting on the kitchen counter, and they told me, and I cried a lot, and told them just to leave me there, and I would be okay on my own. Wow. I was always quite independent. Um, but that's all I remember. I do remember it being a fairly unpleasant experience. And but what was the reason for that? Was it you've got your friends and you don't want to leave? It would have been or? free. Look, I mean, change is scary, particularly when you're that age, right? Yeah, um, yeah I think it was just... I, the idea of the complete other side of the world, a place we'd never been because they hadn't gone before. Right. And, um, yeah, it was just a big shock. Had I been older, I probably would have noticed in planning and, 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 and right. talking there about things when I wasn't there. The yeah, <laughs> but I don't recall any of those initially. So, yeah, yeah. it was just, a, oh, we're going to move. Yeah. This is going to be great. Blah, blah, blah. We're doing this because you can have more opportunities and all these exciting things and you're going to love it. And I thought, no, I hate the idea. And had you, like, a, a seven-year-old, did you know about New Zealand? Or no. was it, yeah. No, it was, um... It could have been any name that they threw out. I knew out. about Australia. Okay. But New Zealand, sorry, yeah. New Zealanders. <laughs> <laughs> and what, so what's going on in your parents' world? Like, why, why were they leaving the Isle of Man to move to New Zealand? For me, um, they didn't want to move back to England okay. because neither of them are enormous fans of the place. Um, just... In were terms they of from opportunity, big and, or? yeah, they were, okay. and yeah. um, in particular, Coventry is is just it's got some it's got some issues. Mm. My understanding, I don't know a great deal about it, um, but mainly they wanted opportunities for me because the Isle of Man doesn't really have any. If you want to go to university, you go to England. Mm. Um, so they wanted me to go and do whatever it is I wanted to do because I've always been brought up with the idea you can do whatever it is you want to do. Mm. And my understanding is they moved to give me those. And they knew that New Zealand had all these wonderful attributes, beautiful nature, which obviously I adored as a child and now. Um, but it also had great learning opportunities and then the potential to... I, we did at one point think we were going to move then on to Australia a few years later. We never did, obviously. But just greater scope. Hmm. That's interesting to me because, you know, when we think through a life story and what you do today which does involve a lot of decision-making and, you know, starting a business and doing things like, we can probably already see little traces of it back in the seven-year-old version of you. Does that mm. sound right? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I'm very independent now, and I certainly was back then. Um, I do make quite quick decisions, but contrary to what some people think, quick decisions aren't necessarily ill thought out. Um, yeah, I mean, you can see you can see grown-up Brienne and... Well, don't I grown up? <laughs> I'm older. Um, older Brienne and, and younger 
vision. Yeah, and that younger version, just to tease it out, the final bit here is your parents. It sounds like they were cultivating that in you as well, that that they were encouraging that. Yeah, yeah, I'm an only child, and uh, they always taught me to go and do whatever it is I wanted to go and do. Um, Whenever I say they gave me a lot of freedom, people take that as a negative, like they would just let me roam the streets. Mm. I mean, that's not the case at all, but they gave me freedom to go and read things I wanted to learn about. And I was a very insidey kid. I was obsessed with books. Like all my childhood books are ruined because they're waterlogged because I read them in the shower. Right. Um, They bought me a slide set because I thought maybe it's good for her to spend some time outside. I just read on the slide. Um, They encouraged me to try lots of different things, but then let me do what it is that I loved. Mm. That's a good uh, model for parents to have, I think. <laughs> I've got, I've I got young kids. Lucky. I've got young kids. I always try to learn from other people. Like, how did how did people, you know, progress through their lives? And the role of a parent or parents is terrifying. Is pretty, yeah, pretty yeah. terrifying, <laughs> but also um, pretty crucial and important, isn't it? Like Enormously if, so, and yeah. I think often underestimated. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So you arrive in New Zealand. What was it like? Hated it. Really? Hated it. We lived in a hotel, motel unit for six months in Dunedin. Um, our furniture took about six months longer than anticipated to arrive for various ship-related issues. Frankly, I don't know why they didn't just sell it and buy stuff, but never mind. Um, and what I time was, of year did you arrive? Because Dunedin It was actually my cold. seventh birthday about a month after we arrived. Okay. So it would have been around March uh, yeah. 1994. Right. And, um, yeah, I hated it. I, we went to St. Clair School in Dunedin, mm-hmm. um, and I was bullied mercilessly. One, because I tucked my shirt in, which I understand is just an absolute crime right. as a child, <laughs> but also because I had an accent. I would love to have my English accent back, um, but I was bullied mercilessly, hated it, and they took me out of that school. Um, I think it was about six months later we moved to McAndrew Bay and loved that from there on. It was mm. just a different environment. Friendly school, loved it. That's where I started the pet detective agency that you may have heard about. Mm-hmm. Um, and various other like little kid things um, because I had a child minor so my parents both worked full time they had to end of story Mm. Um, and I had a child minder after school for a couple of hours who had um, a similar age um, daughter too actually and we just went and roamed around McAndrew Bay because it was this beautiful friendly neighbourhood and and did all sorts of things Mm. I think we at one point we had a game where we owned all of the horses in the world and allowed people to borrow them on occasion oh right just yeah if they asked specially then they could borrow that horse yeah Yeah. and your accent then did that switch quite quickly due to the the bullying I taught myself right apparently I switched to Australian for a while okay because a mix of like Kiwi English sort of sounds weirdly Australian um, but yeah, I I very much push myself to lose it. Mm. But people still say I have a twang or an English mm. touch now, but some people say I don't, so I don't know. Yeah. Accents are funny things. Like when, when I arrived, um, so this was mid-1980s, and I think for me, arriving at that point, it was kind of a cool thing to have an American accent. And we were, we were living in Amaru, actually, yeah. um, so just up the road from you. Um, but I had, you know, like an Atari video game, so that made me like wow the new kid with the strange accent and he's got a video game so i think i didn't switch but i wonder if there'd been different pressures than i might have you know i don't know i think it would have been that school Mm. and i don't know what it is about that school but i don't have fond memories of it at all Mm. uh but i don't remember feeling like that at all when i moved to mccantry and i wouldn't have got rid of my accent by then right so mm, just that first six months are a challenge i I don't believe my parents enjoyed it overly either but again not anything I've ever really discussed with them since. Yeah. 
Well, I'm giving you lots of material. You are. This, <laughs> and this on flight your flight, to the UK is going gonna, to be really interesting. That's right. <laughs> so, because uh, it, it is an interesting point, you know, if, if particularly if your child isn't happy when you first move to the land of opportunity, like at some point they must have looked at each other and said, should we go back? You know, like, let's go back to the UK, but we'll go to a little country village somewhere or something. But I don't you know, think it was in the financial cards, to be honest. It's right. a big move back then, you know. This was, yeah, they'd made the commitment. It was, yeah, it was it. We were going to make it work. Yeah. And you go through rough times, you be flexible, you adapt, you, you try and figure out what's going to work. I mean, not many people like change. Mm. I do now, but I imagine as a seven-year-old, I didn't. Yeah. So I wouldn't have liked wherever we went. Mm. For a while, at least initially. Yeah. That's how I feel about it anyway. Mm. But I, I do... And, you know, you remember things wrong and you invent things. But I do remember that school being horrible. Mm. But I, yeah. Mm. Well, Could have just been the friend group I ended up yeah, in. Yeah, you never you know. know. I had no yeah. idea. I'm sure the teachers were wonderful. But it's just, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So you mentioned your first, I guess, entrepreneurial venture, which is the pet detective agency, right? <laughs> Can you outline what that was? What age were you at that point? I think I was eight. That's what I've always said, because I think I was eight. Um, So about a year and a half into being here. Um, I think it was sparked. So McKendry Bay has a dairy, and there was lots of lost pets uh, posters on the wall. Okay. uh, You know, with a tear off the numbers strip. And I think I saw that and thought, well, I want to go find these pets. I think I probably stole some of these posters and went and had a look. Um, And then I decided I was going to make a real business. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was presumably called Brienne's Pet Detective Company. I actually don't know if I even named it. And then I just went looking for animals. But we did, I, I did find a cat. I right. found a cat under a bush that was genuinely missing. And I took it back to the address. But I never got paid. Right. I think it was like my first moment of a experience of a bad debtor. Right. It could be. Mm. Well, if the, if the compensation was outlined, you know, mm. reward... Nothing happened. No, I, yeah, I feel like there was a reward. Yeah, it's interesting to me though that you would have you would have framed it in the sense of this is a business or this is a something yes. that I'll do. Like that was a conscious part of it, right? Yes, yes, it was, and they all were. They were ways of creating things. And I think a big part of that was my parents were both off doing exciting things. Right. My dad was a, um, a reticulation engineer. So it does all the pipe work under the ground for things like gas. And mum at that point, I think, was working at Cadbury's as a, a quality control, which mm-hmm. means she came home with a brown bag full of offcuts every Friday, wow. which was amazing as an eight-year-old-ish. Um, That's like the Willy Wonka sort of It was of exactly like, like Willy Wonka. Mum brings home chocolate. <laughs> yeah, I got to try a whole lot of flavours that never made it to the market, and they really should have. Yeah. Um, so I think that was, in, you know, they were going to do cool things, mm-hmm. and I wanted to go somewhere to do those cool things. So I was going to invent it myself. Um, my dad also then, you know, I found his business card one day, and I was like, obviously I want one of those. Um, didn't get one of those at the pet detective company, though. It wasn't really necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's why. Mm, that's good. So you're coming through primary school, high school. Were there subjects that stood out to you that you enjoyed? or Science yeah. and English. Science and English. Science right. and English. Both of them loved them both. Loved all three sort of major groups of science, physics, um, chem, and bio. Particular affinity for bio, I suppose, but mm. that's because the other two involve a bit of maths, and maths is just the worst subject on planet Earth. Mm. I skipped as many classes as I could. I dropped it as soon as I could. I hate, hate, hate it. Right. But now I don't. Oh, you come back to it. I'm not very good at it. Mm. 
but now I see it in real real world applications. It makes so much more sense. To me, I have to learn. I have to understand the why, which is why I like science, because it's a whole understanding of why something happens, right? Mm -hmm. Maths was just like, learn this formula and apply it. And there was never any real world applications given. Mm. If it was taught differently, I would personally have responded better. Mm. So maybe those sort of word questions like, John has X number of apples. And yeah. Jane has Y number of apples. and They were better. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it was, I can't think of an example now. Mm. I always like trigonometry, strangely, because that made sense. You could mm. figure out an area if you were trying to build something, I guess. Yeah. And English as well? I mm. always loved English. Um, Is that the, the reading in the shower and the, you know, Yeah, probably. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I always uh, read at a, a higher level and wrote at a higher level until I got to, I think, year 12 when I had a new English teacher and um, she basically told me all my previous teachers were having me on and she was really really strict and I thought shit I'm actually really bad at this how have I gone my whole life thinking I can read and write (laughs) Um, so she honestly she would give me um, so that was when we moved to NCEA so it became average what was it Achieved, sorry, um, merit and excellence. She gave me achieved on every single essay, which was right. just devastating. I used to get excellences. Um, and she spent a lot of time teaching me how to really write formally because I was quite a casual, I guess I was quite a casual writer. Right. Come the um, final exams, straight excellences. And then it turns out she was kind of doing it on purpose. Uh-huh. So she was my worst teacher through that year. But at the end of the day, I think she's the teacher that had the most impact on my vocabulary and writing which now I do a lot of yeah interesting and even across the whole high school experience she's a teacher who would have influenced the most or were there science teachers as well there was a chemistry teacher who was actually Manx Hmm. um it's from the other man and um he taught general science at lower levels I think and also chemistry as you went up and um he was just fun um I think a lot of scientists are a little bit eccentric Mm -hmm. um which makes it more fun. But, um, yeah, he was – I don't know why he had an impact, but I will probably remember him till I die. Uh, he was just fun. He made it interesting, and sometimes chemistry can be a bit dry. Right. Um, yeah. So science was something that you look forward to when mm. you had classes. I never skipped those classes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Those, those high school years, the teachers, what influences there are that then shape you into what you decide to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I moved to Queenstown when I was – 10 uh, and grew up there till I was 18 Mm. Um, but when I I remember arriving in Queenstown at 10 years old I still tucked my shirt in I was still an indoorsy kid and then Queenstown broke me I remember that first year I arrived halfway through the year which was not ideal and um, a couple of weeks later met some great friends one of them owned a station and um, actually I credit her a lot for my outdoorsiness now actually um, because she taught me how much fun it was uh, but a couple of weeks, we had an outdoor education week. Mm-hmm. We were going to do fun things. And we had to go and do a rafting trip. And I was absolutely terrified because I couldn't actually swim at that point. Oh. Yes. Now I'm a, like a rescue diver, but right. I couldn't swim when I was 10. I had yeah. learned when I was four and had forgotten. Okay. I was terrified of the water, terrified of white water rafting. And my friend convinced me we wanted to go on the, on the harder boat because she's clearly had more faith in me than I did. And I think it was the most exciting, fun time ever and that I think is when I went from being quiet well maybe I was never quiet but this sort of <laughs> English kid who liked reading books the most and didn't want to go outside because it was cold or hot or whatever and into this more explorey mm. 
person. Yeah, that's interesting because I mean Queenstown's such a beautiful place, isn't it? Like you can't in the world. It's still not one of many the most places. beautiful places in the world. Yeah, I know it's changed a lot, and obviously not all for the better, but I love it there. But that's yeah. probably because I grew up there. Yeah, yeah. I'm going down there on Wednesday, and I know as I come in and land, you know that view as you come in and then you get out and. The lake is right there. And it is. It is yeah. beautiful. The flight in freaks a lot of people out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've flown in before when it's foggy, and that's oh, very, good. very freaky. Because <laughs> as you're coming in, the pilot's like, we're going to attempt this, and then we'll see. I, we got turned back to Christchurch one time, and that was like, ooh. That was where I had my first touch and go. Yeah. And that's, um, that's an unnerving experience. Mm. I've never, never had one of those before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there we go. So you're getting towards the end of high school. We're hearing English science type things or what you're concentrating on did you know like with study always did your parents just assume you would go to university yeah we all assumed yeah no one ever discussed it I suppose it was just always I was going to go to university but it was what it was always science related but honestly I've had and heavily influenced by the books I was reading at the time or perhaps a movie because the movie um the day after tomorrow massively influenced me and wanted to be (laughs) into an oceanographer uh, it was always around marine science. Right. I thought about being a doctor for a long time. I even still think about it now. Um, but it's more the fact I want the knowledge. I'm not really interested in being a doctor. Right. Um, the actual practice of meeting yeah. someone for 15 minutes and then the no, next person. and that's, yeah. that's not a, of huge interest, but the knowledge that comes with it. And, I mean, VET. VET was a strong contender for a long time until I actually went and did some work experience at VETS. Mm-hmm. And they had to put the first animal down, and I thought, I don't think I can do this. Mm. Yeah, that would. And make I know it you real. get tougher, and I know it's, uh, it's a, it's a nice thing to do. Mm. Uh, I'm not a very soft-hearted, unfortunately. Yeah, mm. yeah, that reminds me because I did read something somewhere about worms and petals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is that? Can you tell us about that? Well, I was just always rescuing animals. Uh, so whenever it rains, you'll see worms drowning in puddles, and I yeah. always pull them out mm. and, and put them on the nearest piece of, of ground. Um, and I was, we were in Nelson a couple of years ago, so yeah, I'd grown up in theory, and I bent down to pick up a, um, a worm from a puddle behind the, our rental car, and my colleague was in the passenger, in the driver's seat, and very nearly ran me over, because he didn't see me any behind it. Um, right, to rescue the worm. Idiot. Rescued yeah. hedgehogs out of holes, and I know hedgehogs are also a pest, but that one animal yeah is not the problem right and it's no need for it to die in a horrible situation so Mm. mm. yeah no it's good these are all insights into what shapes you what forms you was that the love of animals was that something unique to you or was it your your mother father do you think or um both like animals yeah Uh, i don't believe either of them grew up i think they both had a dog at certain points um my grandma, my nan, my mum, my dad's mum hated all animals okay. in like every respect and wanted like the world sterilised. Mm. Mm. Probably not so good. <laughs> <laughs> she also ate salt sandwiches. Right. So she was a, a tad eccentric. Yeah. Um, I think I have certainly got it more dramatically than any of them. But my yeah. mum now, um, I live in a lifestyle block, and she has taken to like the farmer life, like a duck to water. Right. So was dad, actually. But mum will be out there in the torrential rain, patting the cows and brushing them. And right. <laughs> we've got, I've got two highland um, steers, who are the cutest things in the world. Mm-hmm. Got horses, and she'll forever be out there playing with them. So I think it was hidden because perhaps it wasn't as encouraged mm. in them. Yeah, mm. that's interesting. So um, just before we talk about the next stage, like studying at university and things, that that 
you know, being an immigrant family, did you go back to the UK very much? Or Never. was it really? Never. We didn't wow. go back uh, till 22 years later. Wow. Was that finances, you think, or just you, the separation had happened? And we went on a lot of holidays. Yeah. I, um, it was, I mean, it was a big, big expense. We went to holidays like Bali in Australia, which are right. obviously a lot closer and cheaper. Um, so, yes, finances, finances were a degree of that decision, but also it wasn't... Like I said, they don't love England. And mm-hmm. yes, family is there and important, but family came to us and, and we met in the middle in some places. Like we met um, family in Bali, for example. But mm-hmm. yeah, we never went back until... My mum went back for her mother's funeral. Um, my father and I went back for something. Mm-hmm. A while, um, maybe six years ago, and that was the first time I had been back. Wow. And then collectively as a family, we went back um, in December 2019 snuck in a beautiful family trip there um, via New York. Hmm. But really, no. That's interesting, though. Like, you know, because immigrants, when they move country, there's often things that they're missing from the mm. previous place that they lived. And, and I'm an example. Like, we were from America originally, but we used to go back to visit cousins, uncles, and aunts, and all that. So, yeah. Oh, interesting. So you're at the end of high school, and clearly there's an expectation that you're going to be studying at university. Yeah. But there's a few universities. Internal, yeah. External, okay. I think. Uh, yeah, um, we. My dad got offered a job uh, with a, a, a different gas company. Uh, people find it funny that my dad's a gas engineer, or was. He's retired now. Mm-hmm. Um, bearing on mind what I didn't do now. <laughs> <laughs> um, he was offered a job. I was moving up to go to Canterbury University, um, almost simultaneously. So we chose to move up, and I would live with him for a while rather than um, mm-hmm. paying for a university hall. Which is a decision I actually don't know I'd make again because I think I missed out on a lot of university life. Mm. But anyway. And how had you chosen Canterbury rather than Otago or Auckland or Wellington? Or? I don't know. Um, I think I saw in my mind that Dunedin is cold and wet and miserable and I didn't have good memories of it. Mm. Christchurch I liked as a city. I liked the fact that an hour out of town you've got, oh, well-ish, you've got rainforest to a degree and... The West Coast is beautiful, one of my favourite places ever, mm-hmm. and ski fields, and then you've got the ocean. It's got a nice combination. And yeah. I don't, I never ever considered Victoria, but Massey was the one for vet school. Oh, okay. So I don't know. I don't know why I made that final decision. Mm. And when you get here, it's, uh, from what I can tell, you were straight into the sciences. Is that what you were studying? I or? think I had six months off, um, and I worked at a cafe, mm-hmm. which was fun. Um, or I, would, I guess I would have had a year off. Um, just a bit of a gap year to figure out because I was still like, oh, what am I going to study? Oh. Yeah. But I mean, you can study basic biology that first year. I didn't really and need that gap, gap year. year. You were here, yeah, in, right? Yeah, here in Christchurch. Um, it's interesting. I'm just riffing off of this. Like, it's interesting that you didn't go back to the UK for a gap year. You know, like reconnect with your roots or I something. I had a lot like of opportunities that. to go back to the UK. Actually, now I think about it, I remember um, being asked as a kid, maybe twelve-ish, if I wanted to go live with my grandparents for a year, right, and go to school there. And I said no because the idea of it was too scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's funny because I travel a lot now, but I still always have a slight trepidation when traveling that something bad is going to happen to the people I leave behind. Mm-hmm. And I don't know where that comes from. Mm. It's very strange. So I, I worried about that, even back then. Mm. Yeah, and no, I never even thought about the UK for a gap year. That yeah. probably was money related because I cannot save mm. to save my life. Yeah. Yeah, but like OEs generally, or gap years generally. Most people go that way. Yeah, yeah, you're going to the UK or to Camp America or something mm. or Australia or whatever. Yeah, 
I don't know why I never even thought about it. Mm. So you're now studying, and at what point did these business ideas... First day. Oh, first day. Yep. Um, I am an appalling student, and I hope no one at Canterbury is listening to this, but I went to maybe one lecture round of 20. Um, I went to tutorials as I had to, and obviously labs, but... um, Just bad student. Um, Which was fine in the end, because it didn't really matter in the long run. Um, And what were you studying? Was it chemistry at that point? I did a couple of... In the first year, I did a couple of chemistry papers, a couple of bio, mainly bio, Mm -hmm. and then a horrible biological stats paper. Yuck. Um... Oh, actually, I did the philosophy and history of science, and that was my favourite, and an Antarctic paper. That was that mm-hmm. was also very interesting. So it was a hodgepodge of things, but that's what your first year's for. Mm. Um, yeah, so the first year, I think I came home and decided I'd left the cafe job, I think, at that point, and I decided when I got off the orbiter uh, that I wanted to start something. Um I don't remember what any motivation was there in terms of cosmetics. And that's the bit I've always been thinking about because why did I decide to go into the cosmetics industry? Because I don't, I'm not overly cosmetic driven. Mm. Um, I'm not particularly interested. Uh, TikTok keeps aggressively trying to show me makeup tutorials and I don't care. <laughs> I mean, I'd like to be able to do it better, but also not enough to learn. Um, so I never, never quite understood. But I guess it's a combination of, it's easily accessible. Cosmetic chemistry is it's teachable, You're, you know, you right. can teach. There's, there's no degrees in New Zealand that do it. I was studying science at the time and it was also affordable, so that's probably why I ended up there. Right. So the first company was called Pure and it was just, you know, tinkering around. I got to make stuff in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. It was really creative, which mm-hmm. was really fun, so it was a nice combination of creativity and science, but I didn't have any of the thoughts about business being the force to change the world that I do now back mm-hmm. then. It wasn't, it wasn't that at all. Mm-hmm. And how long did you do that? business for because it was it was focused on cosmetics was that the yeah it was I mean it evolved over time first it was just um it was things like butter blocks and, and solid um solid moisturizers for a while because they're actually very easy to to formulate them and, and sort of stabilize um they were packaged they were plastic free again none of these things were the reason behind it I just thought they were cool forms because mm-hmm. I like to do things that were different um, shampoos, moisturizers, it evolved as I got bored. Um, I didn't, it wasn't really a business and that I certainly didn't have a plan. I didn't really have any ambition. I really enjoyed selling um, and a, a lot of the people I sold to back then are still buy from a tech now, which is right. really cool, even though it's a separate company. Um, so you were and, going to markets on Saturdays and yes. that type of thing? Oh, so you just so many markets in my life. <laughs> and they are, they're, they're enjoyable in the middle. But they are, you know, you're getting up at 6 o'clock in the morning to set up. And I'm not a morning person. I know that lots of people don't mind, but I hate it. Hate, hate, hate. Uh, so you'd get up at 6 o'clock in the morning. You'd haul all your stuff there in the frost because they're always in winter. Right. And, um, yeah, you'd sell your stuff, which was quite cool because it was great customer interaction. I think that's why I'm now still really focused on customer. I will read our customer service email every day just to see if there's any trends or anything mm. coming up that I want to be aware of. Um, but that, that customer interaction was really important. Um, yeah, and then I, I think I sold on Facebook in the end mm-hmm. and then built a website. Yeah. Mm. And then maybe three years into that, I start, no, I don't know. It gets a bit confusing, my timeline now, because at some point 
I went part-time at university because Pure actually got too busy and I think I was only doing a paper or two a semester whilst doing that. And then for some insane reason, for some reason I just cannot fathom, I um, started another one, which was a confectionery company. And again, doing it differently instead of fudge that was, you know, a block, it was a liquid, which is the opposite of what I do now. <laughs> um, so it was like a, well, it was spoonable fudge. So you just eat it out of the pot or you could do a whole bunch of stuff. And that actually did come about from like a, um, you know, a, what's the word? Like a brainwave moment. Right. Uh, a conversation with someone that then yeah. it leads to. Because my favorite thing, I'm not really a fan of cooking. I'm, I don't mind it, but I just don't love it. Um, but I do like making desserts and things. I think they're more creative and more exciting if you can go sort of off-piste. You don't have to worry about a recipe so much. Mm. I know that a baker somewhere is cringing reading this, but listening to this. Um, I went to the supermarket. I was late to a dinner party, went to a supermarket, couldn't find anything that didn't taste like plastic because those old mousses that you used to be able to buy in then whip actually tasted like plastic. They mm. were horrific. So I thought, you know, there was nothing ready made back then. This was back before dollop, and um, I'm going to make something. And I, I set it on fudge because, again, with a bit of a science background, was it's very shelf-stable. You don't have to refrigerate it and you don't have to preserve it. Mm. There's nuance there. But, um, yeah. So it sounds like each time, though, you've kind of taken a product or, a, or something and then thought, how can we do this a bit differently? I don't see right? the point like, doing a business that someone else is already doing. Yeah. Unless you can do it really a lot better so that the customer will actually notice or differently, you are going to struggle to generate PR. And PR, in my opinion, is what builds a brand you were never going to build a brand through paid media. You will go bankrupt trying to do so. Mm. It's the organic, a it's friend telling now. a friend. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why Atik had did so well with press in the early days and, and still does to a degree because we were so different. Mm. We had such high standards for ethics in our yeah. decisions. Yeah. That's great. So what happened to those two businesses? Sold them. Sold them within maybe six months of one another. Mm. another. Um and would you call them, looking back, would you say that they were successes or failures or learning experiences? Pure was a success. Or? I'm not sure that uh, the confectionery company was. If I'd have had the capital to invest in it, because the problem is I couldn't keep up with demand, my mum and I and my dad, um, bless them, they've been involved in all of them. Mm. <laughs> They're very patient. <laughs> uh, they, you know, they were with me in higher commercial kitchens where we were trying to make kgs and kgs and kgs of the stuff. And we were doing it all wrong. Absolutely all wrong. I never negotiated any deals with suppliers. So I was buying Whitaker's chocolate from Gilmore's at not far off the retail price. Right. You know, none of my costings worked. Um, I entered into a lease based off sales, but I never looked at the bottom line because I really was stupid when it came to finance. Um, so it was a success in that the brand was loved, the product was loved, um, the marketing, all of that was exciting. What yeah. I lacked was the operational side and how to right. scale manufacturing and how to sort out the finances. And had I had those, like I have now, um, it would have been fine. But the, the, I mean, the difference between Antique and, and the confectionery company was simply that now I have people who balance out my lack of skills, right? And whereas mm. back then I didn't. Um, well, yeah, I still remember the recipe to memory. I will never forget it. I've often thought about doing it again. Yeah. I'm, no, no. <laughs> A sideline of it mm-hmm. is the fudge, the spoonable fudge. You're going backwards. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting, though, you know, for an entrepreneur, I think all those stages are really important to understand because I think that's what then prepares you for the next thing, right? Like if you hadn't done those things, mm. then you wouldn't have known the bits that were missing and, you know, or... or um, and also, I went on that um, way back, 
machine. You know, you can see I websites. And so yeah. I went to 2008 and I did have a look. I think it was 2008. It was around then. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a good website. There's a lot of exclamation marks, <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> There's a lot of enthusiasm there, you know, oh, talking know. about the product. But it, I was a lot more creative, I reckon. But it did, it did have elements of what you, I know is important today as well, that I can see that there were streams of things. So the packaging was mentioned, you know, the, the bars you were talking about the way that was done and 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 you mentioned um, animals I think and cruelty free and so there were elements that yeah. then you know form the foundation for what comes next certainly I wouldn't be anywhere without either of them and I don't regret doing them and just because it was not a financial success in the short period of time I only had it for a year and a half yeah um, it doesn't mean it wouldn't have been had I had the nous to to take that bigger step I suppose mm. Um, but they did teach me a lot. I mean, I do make the joke that you don't uh, ignore the IID, and I didn't ignore them. It's just sort of I didn't really think about didn't them. Think about it. Yeah, mm. they might come calling and yeah, ask yeah, about the fact that the company was clearly losing money. You know, but it doesn't matter because it was accounted for wrong, and the accountant I relied on because they did have one. Yeah. Um, in retrospect, not uh, perhaps as uh, good. I mean, it's good and bad in every industry, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, perhaps not as, not as, not the perfect fit. Um, but yeah, they taught me a load. They taught me how fun business is, how yeah. creative it is, how how to build a brand, because that's a bit I know a lot of people struggle with, but I love and find it the easiest thing to mm. do. Um, but the other side was you cannot do everything. You will not be perfect. And I, I swear, you see all these entrepreneurs start. I do a lot of mentoring. I really do love it, but I find it frustrating that all these people will say to me, oh, but I can't do that. I don't know how. That's okay. Nobody knows how at the beginning. You just take that first step, whatever it may be, and it could be as simple as registering your domain name, right? Because then it's slightly more real and you take the next step. But people get held back by this idea they don't know how to do everything. Not mm. a single person on planet Earth knows how to do everything. Mm. I think you make a good point. I was just interviewing somebody else, and they were t saying if they could write a book, it would be there are no silly questions here. Mm. And, and the idea behind it is that you actually sometimes defer to the knowledge holders around a boardroom table, and you say, well, that, that's the finance thing, so the finance person talks. Or that's a marketing thing, well, they need to do it. And, and entrepreneurs, directors, people in you know those positions, they actually need to be asking the questions and getting deeper there is no shame in not knowing something and being surrounded by people who are cleverer than you mm. and yeah sometimes you might think oh god i feel like an idiot but that's that's okay just accept that you don't know everything don't take it as a personal ego blow and move on mm. you know more about the things about things you are the expert in than you think mm. of course the, the 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 point is the more you know the more you realize you don't know, mm. which is depressing. Mm. <laughs> I think that's probably true. <laughs> yeah, the more you know, the more you need to know <laughs> or learn. Yeah. But that's exciting too. Life is full of learning exactly. opportunities. What, how boring would it be if you knew everything? What yeah. would there be to do? That's right. So you've um, moved on from those two ventures. When did Etik come into play? Because I, I remember first meeting you, and I think it was about 2017 or so, and I think one of our mutual friends, Anna, had yes. invited me to come and listen to one of your pitches. Um, so I'm just curious, how do we get from where you are there as a student, you've sold those businesses through to the next stage and, it, and I'm conscious it takes time to get to this point but my interviews I like to go deeper with people mm -hmm. because it's something a bit different yeah it's a bit different but also I think it's 
really helpful for an entrepreneur to understand another person's journey rather than jumping straight. If my opening question was, tell me about Atik right now. Which it always know. is. Yep. Yeah, so <laughs> that's the purpose if anybody's listening, wondering why I'm going on about the early origins. But I think it's good because if you hear the PR story of an entrepreneur, you only get the highlights. Mm, yeah. And I always think that's a shame. Yeah. I feel like I failed a lot more than I ever succeeded. Mm. That's why I say luck is an awful and an enormous part of, of business, and I know that annoys people, but it is. Mm. Um, Atik came along maybe six months after I sold them both. Um, I sold them fairly close together, and um, it wasn't obviously for large amounts of money, and they really paid off debt, so Atik didn't have any money to get started with. Um, I think my parents were the only people who said, yeah, cool, let's start another one. Um, everyone else was like, that's a stupid idea. You should go get a job. <laughs> yeah. Fair, but I wasn't going to anyway. Um, I don't remember officially the kickoff date or anything. I believe I just ordered some ingredients. And, and that was the start. That was it, yeah. Um, in, in Pure, I had been making solid shampoo bars. Right. Uh, you may have seen them on that way back when. Yeah. You've seen the, um, the bars, which were a little bit rustic looking, let's be honest. Mm. And my dad made me like a PVC pipe mould thingy. I uh, used to mould them in. Now they're a little bit more sophisticated. But, yeah, I remember running it in my flat with my um, boyfriend at the time and just making a mess, setting microwaves on fire, those are the usual jokes, crop pots, mm-hmm. figuring out how on earth to make this stuff at scale, which was not figured out until about 2017, because mm-hmm. uh, I started it in 2012. Yeah. And I think that's where it all began. But the idea of a, the idea of a tech is quite different to the other two. Is yes, it's a product. Yes, it's a brand. Yes, it's exciting. But the whole purpose of a teak, I didn't really know that either. I said, you know, the purpose of a teak is to rid the world of plastic bottles. But that is a bit of a silly purpose because not all plastic bottles, in fact, not even the majority of plastic bottles are in the cosmetics industry. The cosmetics industry is massively wasteful. But if I really wanted to do that, I would have had to think a bit bigger. And I think I knew that but didn't know that. Really, a teak's purpose is to inspire well, to change the world through ethical business practices, right? But that's not just with what we are doing. A far greater impact will be empowering and inspiring other businesses to do the same by realising you can be financially sustainable at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, have a look at the change in the industry. I mean, consumers are so aware of the plastic crisis now and they are demanding businesses do better. And I, I think the change is, if I hear it called a trend one more time, it's not a trend, it's a revolution. Mm-hmm. Well, so I wanted a teak to save the world. Mm. It was the difference because I got bored of the other two. I sold them because I was not inspired anymore. Mm. So you're coming into a teak with kind of a mindset of this is going to be more than selling the product and making the profits and things. Mm. It was actually with this in mind that you know it's going to have a, a big, meaningful impact and change. Yeah. The thing I con- concentrated on the most was the sourcing of uh, sustainable, fair ingredients, mm-hmm. which is why I formed a relationship with um, uh, women in business in the Pacific Islands to source coconut oil, for example. But then there was also the packaging. And, then, and people from, you know, diehard fans from way back then will remember that our packaging used to be water-soluble. So it was paper-wrapped. You'd take it with you in the shower and the whole thing would dissolve and you'd just have a bar. It was very cool. But it turns out it's not actually as environmentally friendly as you'd think because of the energy that goes into making a paper dissolvable, <coughs> which is why we don't use it anymore. Um, I don't remember my point with that statement anymore, but it was definitely more purpose-led. In fact, it was entirely purpose-led mm. as opposed to just selling a product and therefore financing me through university. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. So the next few years, you're experimenting finding the market, building it. Um, take us through to, because you did the initial crowdfunding 
and it was around then that you had to change the branding a little bit, right? Mm. Like because yeah, of the fun. name. Yes. So it started life as sorbet. I should probably have said that earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted a name that sounded delicious, and apparently I have a thing for French names because they're both French. Right. Not intentional, but uh, I wanted a name that sounded delicious because all the flavours sounded delicious, mint and coconut and yum. Mm. Uh, we did our first equity crowdfunding round in 2015, and we brought 152 shareholders on board for $200,000 in 10 days, which was great. But we sold them on the idea that we were going to go to Australia and America. We were a team of three at that point. My mum was running production, and I had a great office manager. Uh, and I had a business um, partner, sorry, my first um, my mm. first business mentor who became a business partner and invested in the company, just a small amount prior to. And um, then our IP lawyer went and uh, had a look for Sorbet in Australia and the US. So we had it in New Zealand, but of course, kind of a common word, mm. uh, we couldn't get it in the States or Australia. And I thought, well, does that matter? Yeah, kind of important. Mm. So we decided we'd have to change the name. Um, we scrambled about for a couple of days, and I thought, I can't tell these shareholders. I mean, talk about a complete you lack just of raised confidence. Money. Yeah. yeah. How are they going to think? How? What are they going to think of us? And yeah. we did. And in the end, I sent out an email, and I was absolutely transparent. And I said, um, we we didn't check. Um, this was a baby business owner's mistake. I'm really sorry, but don't worry, we can fix this. Super easy. Mm. We're going to come up with a new name. If you've got any suggestions, let me know. Had our IP lawyer maybe check for about five or different five or so different options. One of them was Seed. That's the only one I remember. Hmm. Really glad we didn't call it that. Mm. Not my favourite name now at all. But Atik was actually the legal name of the company because I loved it as a word back when I ran Pure. So that's mm. why Atik Limited is older than Atik is, which ah. confuses people uh, because Atik Limited was the fin- sort of like the financial holding, the, the holding company, if you like, of, of my other businesses. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And um, but the shareholders were phenomenal. They were like, yeah, no worries, sweet. Yeah, we have we don't faith mind. in you. Yeah. No, they're on a, not a single grumpy person among them. I, yeah. yeah, that's great. And then I do, yeah, so I do remember, it must have been 2017 mm-hmm. then, was it? Because yeah. I remember Anna Gunther gave me a call and said, do you want to come down and, and listen to this pitch and we'll just give some feedback. And there was several other people in the room. And I remember when you started talking, I think I'm right. And it came from a number of us saying, what about your story? What about building in yourself? into this presentation because initially my memory is that it was more about the business you know like how many units will sell and things and yeah. I think uh, but I think right. what you did was you you kind of realize maybe maybe you can tell me but that that your story was actually part of this brand as well um, and it you know it was kind of about your moving forward if I recall, I was given a lot of advice 2015, 2016 to try and move away from the me side of things right. because it was me while it was just me in the kitchen, which makes sense because you don't have much else to talk about, right? Mm. Um, and then I was given the advice that businesses shouldn't be built around a person, which it depends on where you want to go as to whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. Mm. Um, and my sort of board gave me that it should be more focused on the business as a standalone, which is actually something I don't agree with for most businesses now. Mm. I think business people buy from people, not faceless corporations. And there's very few businesses where that insert of a personal story mm. is unhelpful. Um, but you're right. I think that was the turning point where the value in having that personal founding story was realised, and that's when we inserted it in. I mean, obviously it went well. We raised uh, half a million dollars in 90 minutes. Yeah. That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I mean, there's no yeasty boys, two million and what, two hours or an hour or something insane, but yeah. 
Yeah. So I'm just curious then today, you know, we, we're going to jump over a whole bunch of things that would have happened that since then. But um, I know that it's, you know, you've talked about those things in other places. So I'm just curious how you're approaching the business today and, and thinking about the future. You kind of touched on it, that you want to be a model for other businesses, yeah. other entrepreneurs. Maybe just riff off of that. We can't save the world on our own. It's a twee saying, but we can't. And in the last 18 months, you've seen shampoo bars erupt from every cosmetic brand, right? From EcoStore to P&G to Garnier and everything in between. And that is good because they are not only raising the, uh, well, they're making more environmentally friendly products, although I wish instead of just going with a packaging-free option, they'd actually choose some of our other values as well, like mm. fair trade or palm oil-free or something. Um, but they're also lifting the understanding of the category as a whole because, unfortunately, because it's new and small, people will say, I tried a shampoo bar and it didn't work for me. Shampoo bars don't work for me. Right. But that is silly because it's like saying... Um, I tried a liquid shampoo, shampoo doesn't work for me. Mm. It's the same thing because a shampoo bar, if it's made well, and not all of them are, is exactly the same as a liquid just without the water in it, right? Mm. Um, but you, it's obviously not all down to a teak, but we have had phenomenal success around the world and a lot of press, and we have inspired a lot of consumers to demand more of their brands. And, in the, and, and a lot of new Indie beauty brands are coming out now with better products, whether they be powders or tablets or bars. It's all this growing movement driven by consumers' understanding of what's going on in the world environmentally and demanding better. And I think Atik has helped shape some of that. Um, I hope so, anyway. Mm. And um, it's that's what I want more of. You know, we want more companies to start because indie brands typically not always, typically have higher standards for ethics, but because of their financials, they not necessarily have the ability to do it, but they have goals. Mm. Whereas corporates like P&G have all the resources in the world, but they're also like this massive container ship running in one direction, right? They have got to slow down and then turn around. It's mm. very, very hard for them to do, and they've got to get all these stakeholders and shareholders on board. Unilever is a very interesting company, and they have a book called Net Positive, which is worth a read about the things they're trying to do because they are trying to do more good. And they're genuinely trying, you know, but it's much harder for them. But the only way we're going to encourage these brands to change is through consumer demand. And the only way you can create consumer demand is by raising awareness, making people aware that these options are available. And, and so it's kind of a twofold thing. That's what I want to take to go on and do, inspire consumers to demand more and inspire brands to realise, oh, I actually can do that and still be mm. profitable. Yeah. Yeah, I, I use the word profitability sometimes these days as that represents sustainability, mm. you know, like the business can keep going. So you need to be profitable. You do. Um, but Profit's not also, a dirty word. Yeah, exactly. But also that, that business itself can actually do something that's good in terms of who they're employing, what they're making, how they make it, all yes. of those things. Yes. And um, I passed over to you this little book here on laying foundations for reimagining business. I think there's a lot of concepts in here where I'm talking about purpose you know purpose is at the heart of business and my dream would be that a hundred years when somebody's listening back to this recording that that they go well actually that was um you know there was a shift that was going on and that all businesses have moved towards this idea of purpose and impact rather than it just being like oh well that's a nice add-on and let's greenwash it <laughs> there's mm. I don't believe businesses that are here to exist to solely 
exist to make money for their shareholders should exist for much longer. Um, they're dinosaurs and signs of an old way of doing business. They're exploitative because their staff certainly don't make money. Mm. Uh, the way uh, the way they employ people, I mean, there are billionaires out there who have made money off the fact that they pay less than minimum wage, and I'm not going to name names, but I think you all know who I'm talking about. And horrific working conditions, you know, and they're a billionaire rocking around with a couple of super yachts. It's despicable. Mm. So, hopefully, that sort of way of doing business dies. But the problem is, you, you, you talk to these these CPG companies. I deal, you know, I have a lot of conversations with various people from CP, um, consumer products companies like Unilever and Procter and Gamble, and they'll say, "Oh, we have this vision and mission. You know, our vision is to produce clean water for people." So why are you doing this, 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 and this, and this? Oh, but we're doing this at the very end. So like, they're planting a tree for every order but they are chopping 10 trees down for every order. You know, it's people are like, yeah, we've got a purpose statement, so we're good to go. No, your purpose has to be embedded your entire way through your company in every decision you make. I am not saying you need to be perfect, but you actually have to tie what you do to your purpose. And this is not your purpose. It's a cute little saying you're putting on a whiteboard in your office. Mm. It really annoys me. Yeah, no, I can tell. And I, and I agree with you. <laughs> what, all the gesticulation? <laughs> It doesn't come through in the audio, but I'm sure people heard the banging on the on the table. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I I hear you. It's a, it's a great source of frustration, and you know the greenwashing, social washing type of like, oh, come buy our product because we have this whatever, uh, you know. But you dig a bit deeper, and you're saying, well, actually, you're you're basically selling sugar water to children, you know, like this is in a in a plant based bottle though, so it's yeah, okay. Well, that's oh. right. Yeah, come and buy the recyclable. Bottle. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we're, we're here in your office in Christchurch, the future. Do you think Christchurch will remain um, where you're based? Like you've kind of had a long time here or, um, or are other places calling? We have offices in the US and the UK. Mm-hmm. And I would imagine as we grow, we will develop further offices in, in other countries. And that is a good thing. Uh, we will always have a presence in New Zealand. That's our own New Zealanders are was our home, it's where we were founded, it will always be our heart. Um, but to be truly environmentally friendly, we need to look at expanding operations elsewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, but with little legs like an octopus. Yeah, that's good. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious, well, j- jumping on the octopus theme, I, I had a look at the Atik Foundation, and a lot of that does seem to do with the ocean, you know, and that I guess now we know marine biology, you know, the ocean was important for you. Um, can you just talk a little bit about Etik Foundation? Because that's quite new. It is. And, and I see that as the charitable arm of, of Etik. So, yeah, what are you doing there? We've always donated 2% of sales, 20% of profits um, the, since inception. Typical corporate donates 1% of sales. No, 1% of profit, sorry. So it's a very mm. small amount. Um, but it's part of the purpose, you know, we... we by the very definition of running a business, we will be doing harm to the environment. It's an inescapable truth of being a human being. So by being a regenerative company, which is what we want to aim to be, to give more good, to, to give more back than we ever take, part of that means supporting charities who are doing fabulous things. Uh, so we've always been very ad hoc because it wasn't an enormous amount of money. We've donated $2 million in value since 2012, right, which is quite cool. Now, we, when we added it up, I was, I was quite stoked. But over the next five years, it'll be $10 million. It'll be a lot more. And I have spoken to, last year I spent a lot of time, so my investor who's based in New York, has a bit of sort of like a family office, has a, has a family foundation. 
a very big one. Mm-hmm. And he very kindly allowed me to spend a lot of time with his one of his advisors. And she was just a wealth of information. She connected me with a couple of other philanthropy advisors. And they all said, you need to be really laser focused on something. And I said, cool, I want to focus on environmental protection. And they were like, yeah, that's not narrow at all. Right. <laughs> and I said, what about conservation? And they said, nope, you're not getting it. <laughs> And arguably even just the ocean is too wide. But I, we, we discussed it as a team. It's We care about so many things, and I understand niching down, but it is too hard to go too much narrower. So as a company, as I said, we believe that business is the solution to many of the social and environmental problems, not largely because business caused how many of them? You know, the vast majority of them. Commerce has not statistically historically been a great thing. So I, we have two sort of arms to the foundation, if you like. So one is just grants working with the likes of Mission Blue and Eden Reforestation Projects, two um, non-profits who have a bit of a commerce arm, and particularly the Eden Reforestation. So they work with Indigenous communities around the world to plant trees. They pay them to do so. They pay them to collect seeds to plant more trees, and then they pay them as tree guardians to look after them because a lot of tree planting don't, doesn't focus on the long term. So I love that model, creating economic independence where, unfortunately... Usually, colonisation has has mm-hmm. wreaked horrific consequences. So, I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, the other arm of um, the Etech Foundation is the fellowship, which is back to the whole idea about business changing the world. So, we're right. going to back ideas at very early stage, back women around the world, um, give them money, um, networks, support, mentoring, whatever they need. You know, you tailor it to teach one accordingly on with ideas that are scalable to prevent ocean collapse and and work towards preventing a further climate change and and so on. And that's the bit I'm really excited about. That's cool. Because that's the bit that's got the real potential to create more than just grants. Yeah. Both have their place. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. There's there's an ecosystem, right? There's different tools. All different tools are used. And I think um, Serena Williams has a fund now, I think, which is really investing in women and indigenous and and different categories. And it's like, wow. But not just the talk, you know, like it's they're actually doing it, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah. You're yeah. seeing um, retailers, so Ulta Beauty, um, a retailer in the States, they now have a fund for black and indigenous women in um, America with businesses. Mm. And, and not only do they help fund them, but they also uh, mentor them into retail-ready starts, which mm. I think is great. That's awesome. Well, I have a feeling that we could talk for hours and hours. Yes, <laughs> so probably. we're going we're gonna to end up there. But I, um, what we'll do is in the show notes, put some links to the foundation site and your site, you know, Etique site and things and anything else we can just add it in there so people can find out more. But I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I've really enjoyed even hearing about the entrepreneurial version of you as a child <laughs> and the influence of your parents and then kind of charting that through, you know, high school years, taking a gap year, starting those two businesses, dealing with the ups and downs of that, and then that how that's led into this sort of impact-focused mission-driven business Mm. and so I want to yeah thank you for your time and and sharing and I hope that it's something that people listening can be inspired by and maybe go out and start something of their own yeah because the road is not as straight as it would appear in the articles Mm. you read yeah well well, thank you for having me it was interesting conversation well I do hope you enjoyed that conversation as you could tell we had a lot to riff off of each other about there was plenty of topics that we could cover And I have a feeling that we could have spoken for a couple hours. If you enjoyed this conversation, then why not check out some of the others in the back catalog as well? Because there's more than 320 of those. And there's heaps more information at theseeds.nz. Until next time.